Our show today is sponsored by Beast Brands, makers of premium hair and body wash, lotions, and skincare products like Wash for Everyone, which won a Men's Health Grooming Award. Beast Wash for Everyone is a lightly scented head-to-toe cleanser formulated for human beasts of all kinds that can replace your shampoo, face cleanser, and body wash. It's perfect for sensitive skin and features aloe, shea butter, ginseng, and orange. Here's what I love about Beast products. They smell amazing, green and herbal, sometimes with a eucalyptus tingle or a light citrusy spritz, depending on the product, but they're never overwhelming or perfumey or chemical smelling. That's because they smell like the natural botanicals they're made from. It's that simple. Their formulas are vegan, cruelty-free, and produced in the USA, and they're always looking for ways to be more eco-friendly. Their new Beast Bottle is an infinitely reusable aluminum pump bottle that holds a six-month supply of one of their all-in-one body washes. So you can cut down on plastic waste and save money compared to loading up your shower with a bunch of different products. Plus, your shower looks clean and minimalist because you just have this one sleek, gorgeous bottle. You can find them on Instagram at TameTheBeast as well as simply at Beast. Go to Beast.com and use code BROBIBLE to get 25% off your next order. That's G-E-T-B-E-A-S-T dot com. And the code is BROBIBLE for 25% off. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, all right, all right. In the immortal words of the incomparable Matthew McConaughey, we back, baby. Episode 63 of Endless Hustle. I'm your host, Arthur Cade. Man, do we have an incredibly loaded episode. Another triple header ahead. We've got one of the greatest, if not the greatest drivers in NASCAR history, seven-time champion, Jimmy Johnson. We've got the baddest man on the planet right now, UFC welterweight champion, Kamaro Usman. And we finish off the episode with one of the hottest young stars in Hollywood, she is an actress and an enormous social media star. And Nana Sarkis, she's got a brand new movie out called Seance. What an episode ahead. Let me start off with our first guest, Jimmy Johnson, arguably the greatest NASCAR driver in the history of the sport, one of the most beloved, iconic, and well-marketed faces in NASCAR history. And he's now transitioned over to IndyCar. I mean, Talk about being so good at something that you can transition over to its brother or sister sport and still be as good. Jimmy Johnson, it's an incredible interview, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this because Jimmy is a guy who, when you think about the rise of NASCAR and when it really crossed over into the mega mainstream, Jimmy, Jeff Gordon, and there were a couple others, they were mainly responsible for that. Jimmy was truly one of the pioneers in terms of being able to not only be successful on the racetrack, but also off of the racetrack, branding himself and turning himself into a multi-hundred million or billion dollar brand, whatever Jimmy Johnson's brand is worth. He recently retired, transitioned over to IndyCar, and we had such an incredible conversation talking about what has now become an iconic journey for the guy, how he really made his bones in the sport how he was able to, to market himself outside of the sport, once he became a family man, how that changed him, 
and now his transition into IndyCar. I feel like we really covered it all in this chat, and I think you guys are going to really love it. So without further ado, here is Jimmy Johnson. Freaking awesome day on the Endless Hustle today because I was just telling Jimmy Johnson, who I consider the GOAT of the sport, both on and off the track, how big a fan I am. And now you are an IndyCar star, which is so cool to me. So let's start with that, man. How did that happen? Well, well, thank you, first of all. And, you know, growing up in Southern California, as I did, NASCAR was pretty far away. And of course, I knew of it, knew some of the names, and we would occasionally catch it on television. But what was closest to us was IndyCar. And every kid in my neighborhood threw out IndyCar driver names as their heroes. So that that was the world I grew up in and what I aspired to do. With my relationship uh, with sponsors and manufacturers along the way, my opportunities led to NASCAR, which, you know, has been an amazing experience for me and something I'm very, very proud of. Uh, what I've accomplished and the journey I've been on. Uh, but now, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in time where I just want to have some fun and I want to challenge myself and I want to try something that was always top of mind when I was a kid. And, you know, the great people at Carvana have helped create the opportunity. Chip Ganassi Racing and Chip Ganassi specifically was on board with the idea. And, and here we are. So what's the difference between actually racing in NASCAR and racing in IndyCar? There are more differences than I really ever thought there would be. Um, you know, obviously the cars are much different. The procedures, the process, the technology, uh, you know, every facet of it is different. And I look forward to really spending more time here and, and absorbing what I need to so that it becomes second nature. Right now, there are so many differences that I almost feel robotic trying to connect the dots in each and every session I'm on track. And even even away from the car in the, uh, the the technical side, the debriefs, the planning for our setups of the race cars. You were one of the faces that helped bring NASCAR to the mainstream. I mean, it was, you had Earnhardt's and all the famous generation before you, but then your generation came in and then we saw the beginning of social media. And I feel like the sport exploded from that point forward. For you, when did you know that something special was happening with NASCAR and it had become a mainstream sport? You know, my journey to the East Coast, you know, live in North Carolina, um, I, I really watched the uh, effect that Jeff Gordon had on mainstream media and watching the rivalry between Earnhardt and Gordon really kind of fuel the fire of the old guard, and the new guard. And I think that rivalry and Jeff's success really teed things up for my generation of drivers. So and, and of course, I know before that you have Petty, you have. Pearson, um, you, you keep going back through Kelly Yarborough. There's, there are many names that are all very, very important in the progress and growth of NASCAR. But I, I'm, I'm thankful to Jeff Gordon for many reasons. One, for the, the mainstream appeal that he, he put out there. But also, he was really the first guy that didn't grow up in the South and didn't grow up on short tracks driving stock cars that was given a chance. And he really opened the door for guys like myself, uh, Casey Kane, Kyle Larson today, Tony Stewart, you know, all of the guys that came in from a dirt background um, that was never considered before. What was that welcome to NASCAR moment for you? You know, my first one um, that I recall was my first race that I had in the Cup Series in 2001. Um, I qualified decent, made it to the first round of pit stops around some notables, 
we left pit lane and I, and as I departed down pit lane and pulled onto the racetrack, I was behind Mark Martin and I had Dale Jarrett behind me. And I was like, I'm here. Like, this is the big show. I'm with the big dogs. You know, I've, I've been in this position before, like on a, on a video game playing, thinking it was cool. And this is not a video game. This is real life. I'm in that moment. How do those guys react to the young bucks when you guys are really making the name for yourself? How is the transference of power at that point? I've always had the approach that, you know, there, there's a lot of respect that's owed to the veterans in, in any environment, in any sport or life or whatever it might be. And I feel like I had a, a really nice entry into, uh, there's some bumps along the way. And of course I made rookie mistakes and collected veterans in the process. And I got a couple earfuls uh, along the way, but you know, I, I'm one that would rather have friends and be respectful than, than take the other pathway. So, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too rough on me uh, coming up through the ranks. All right. So you make the transition to Indy, you get in that car and you'd already talked about the differences. Were there ever moments where you're like, man, this is too much for me, even though I'm a world-class driver, I'm not going to really be a superstar in this, in this realm. No, no. I mean, that's not, what this is about for me, of course, I'm competitive. Of course, I want to win races. Of course, I want to win a championship. But, you know, I've really simplified this in the fact that I have zero experience. I, this, I've had 10 days in an IndyCar ever in my life. So knowing the thousands and thousands of laps and hours that I had to put in to be ready for my cup debut and then 19 years in cup, refining those skills and the hours and laps that went into it. It is unrealistic to think I'm going to jump in here and, and be competitive off the bat. So I know there is a process and each week I'm learning so much more that I think that pressure to succeed and pressure to, to run up front will, will show up as this year wears on and as I get into next season. Uh, so until then, I'm just enjoying the moment. Um, these cars are so physical, so fun. The intensity is high. We race at really neat venues all around the country. Um, that I'm just enjoying this moment right now. And I think I've got to focus more on enjoying it than the competitive side, to be honest with you. So you and Tom Brady are members of the seven ring club because you're a seven time NASCAR champion. When you look back at your first one versus your seventh, can you really understand the difference in emotion and mentality and who you were as a person looking through that journey? Yeah, I can. And it's interesting because that journey between one and seven, so much living took place that my perspective naturally changed and I've evolved as a, a human, as a racer, uh, all those things. But, you know, I, I lost two championships before I won my first. And we were literally knocking on the door at the final race of the season and the opportunities went away. And I remember being so fearful that I wouldn't have another chance at winning a championship. You know, that those opportunities don't come around all the time. So then to look at my seventh and, you know, I had a very long stretch between one and seven and, and the many looks, many successful trips that, you know, I was so much more relaxed and enjoyed the moment so much more and felt more present in the competitive spirit of things um, that, you know, I was just more mature ultimately just lived a lot more life and was much more mature. 
It's funny you say that because I remember reading an interview with Michael Jordan where at the end of his career, he felt like everything began to move in slow motion. And it was kind of that smell the roses moment. Is that what you were experiencing? Did the Could you smell the air differently? The tires smell differently? Did it all change for you as you were on your way out? It certainly changed over the years. You know, I, I ran a few more years after winning the seventh. And it was funny when I knew that I was going to hang it up. Um, I started to cherish every second way more than I had in the past. You know, we're the schedule is such that you have very little time to reflect on what you've done because you've got to get ready for the next race. And in those final years, especially after winning my seventh, I did slow things down. Uh, the last two years slowed it down even more. The last year with COVID and the implications of that uh, really helped me savor each moment. And then honestly, I do feel like there were some moments that, that were supposed to happen that didn't because fans weren't in the stands and we weren't at tracks um, for three days like we typically would be. Uh, so, you know, it was a much different end to my NASCAR career than I had ever thought it would be. I saw a recent interview and it was someone talking about, it might've been Kobe Bryant actually, talking about in his final game, how he scored 60 and his younger kids didn't really get to experience Kobe at peak Kobe and really didn't understand his definition of greatness and what he had become. Your kids are obviously younger. And I saw you just took your daughter racing. Do they know and understand how good you are and were and the career you had? Do they have any perspective that you are arguably the goat of a sport? I don't think they really do. I mean, my oldest is 10. So, you know, she was six when I won my last championship somewhere in that ballpark. So it's hard to say that they, they really get it. And they're, they just know me as dad, which is all I'm, I'm really after anyhow. But they are surprised about the notoriety that, that comes with, with being at a racetrack and who I am. Um, my youngest, I don't think that she really remembers much from, uh, from those early days being at track. So I, I see a little bit of surprise in their eyes when, when those moments happen at track. And I'm so thankful I, I've had the success that I did. But I do wish they were a little older or this all happened a little later in life where we could have enjoyed it a bit more as a family. Few people will ever understand what people like you and Brady and Jordan, when you guys have had the success you've had, what it's actually like to, to be at the top of something that you spend your whole life training for, for such an extended period of time. For you, is there a sense where you begin to move away from, I want to win to there's a legacy now and I understand the legacy I want to mold? Is there a moment of transition for you in that respect? There, there was, you know, part of it came with the job to maintain the run that we were on. We were able to win five in a row. And, and when you do that to the, to the competitors, they're doing everything they can to one up you and outdo you and be better than you. So I felt like some of it was just needed to stay on top. And, you know, I feel like many know me for my work ethic and the hours I put in the time I put in the detail that I followed. And, and as it's turned out, that seems to be a big part of my legacy and the way people remember me, especially inside the garage area. So it wasn't such a, a calculated effort. It was really required to stay on top. You've done such an incredible job of branding yourself off the course. Probably you, Earnhardt Jr., and there might be one or two that are probably the leaders in terms of creating a brand. When did that become a focus? Was it a focus of 
I, I want to be a businessman outside of just a, a race car driver. Honestly, it's a big part of motorsport. And especially here in, in the U.S., where sponsorship dollars are king. And it's an easy thing to say, yes, I need to brand myself. But if it's not an authentic fit, then it's not believable. The fans aren't into it. The sponsor certainly is not going to be into it and doesn't work. So it's kind of a chicken or egg situation where I've been very fortunate to create a brand, but I've also been very fortunate to work with these amazing corporations that we've had a common interest in, in likeness and, and understanding. Also, I've driven for a team in Hendrick Motorsports through all those years that got it as well and was a great fit. So you can't have one without the other. And honestly, I believe, you know, my time in the 48 car at Hendrick and just having two primary sponsors through my entire career created this great branding opportunity for me. I want to talk to you about nutrition and fitness because I talk to a lot of athletes and I always hear different techniques, different diets, different workout regimens on how they become elite at what they do. For you, what was the nutrition and diet regimen that you implemented to stay in shape and stay at the top of your game? You know, I've had a great curiosity in how to fuel my body and, and what really works. I've also found it very hard through my life to be as lean as I would want to be. And I'm not sure I ever will be. I just don't have that body composition um, and, and definition that, that I would like to have. But one big eye-opener for me in, in the journey was when I got into triathlon was just how important the meal after, uh, after a training run, ride, swim, or a big event, how important that first 30 minutes was and how wrong I had been doing it. And I guess it's more endurance focused, but I grew up, you know, thinking that protein, protein, protein all the time, but I had this big aha moment and felt so much better when I started adopting the idea of more carbs following a big event to, you know, get that glycogen uh, restoration taking place and restoring taking place than I ever did eating protein. And that just opened up my world in endurance sports and allowed me to um, continue to train the volume that I wanted to. It's helped me in the race car to be able to race through all those, those NASCAR weekends um, where we had three day shows plus test sessions being properly fueled and trying to balance carb intake and a certain percentage of body fat because you can clearly overdo it. So just being strategic and when and what was, was really helpful for me. And that started with my interest in triathlon years ago. Are you a golfer? I like golf. I've tried really hard to love it, but my game is at a point where I just like it. So when you look at golf, what makes it such an entertaining sport? So if you're a NASCAR driver, why do you like golf? I have a great respect for how difficult the game is. And when you see the pros make it look as easy as they do, it's just really special. Um, I've had a chance to go to quite a few PGA tournaments and watch in person. And when you see these guys stripe the ball, how far it goes, how they can turn it, how they can chip the ball, putt the ball. I just, I have an understanding of the difficulty and just a great respect for what they're able to do. If you had a dream golf experience, what would that dream golf experience be? Of course, there are some big name golf courses that I, I would love to play. And you could think up, uh, you know, an elite group, uh, an elite foursome to play in. But for whatever reason, lately, I feel like I, I need to travel across the pond and, and play St. Andrews. There's like a, a some kind of golf experience that's a week long that is just calling my name that I need to embed myself in the game. And 
and uh, hit some links courses and eat bad food and drink too much and just be there with the boys and grind it out for a week. Who would you want to play with? Is there one golfer, if you could do a twosome with, that you'd want to play with or even a foursome? I've been able to get to know Jack Nicholas some over the years, just through charity events and through my sponsor, Ally. And uh, what a wonderful man. He and Barbara are just amazing, amazing people. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to, to tee it up with him. I've played in a few of his charity tournaments. Uh, I've stood next to him on the driving range and we've had some laughs. But, you know, if I could rewind in time or, or whatever it was, but to play with him, you know, in his prime to watch him do his thing would, would be a lot of fun and, and mean a lot to me. I want to also talk to you about just looking back because I was talking to Kyle Bush about, obviously Kyle's one of the most controversial personalities in the sport, but he talked about being an antagonist. You're obviously like the nicest dude on the planet. Were there ever moments where you lost your cool and you stopped being Jimmy Johnson that we didn't see? All the time. I mean, <laughs> we're all emotional beings. We all, you know, things are important to us, mean something to us. You're disappointed, angry, frustrated, all that stuff. You know, I, I have a high tolerance to deal with stuff, but, you know, those, those people with high tolerances usually explode pretty well. <laughs> so, you know, I, that's, that's definitely me. Um, you know, but I, I, I take a little different approach to things. You know, we all, I think ultimately you need to be true to yourself because the minute you start trying to be something you're not, you're just not going to perform. You know, if, if you're not an antagonist and you're trying to be someone that you're not, it's, it's not going to serve you well. I'm obsessed with the masterclass series. I don't know if you've been a follower, but greats in every arena, there's this, this program called masterclass and it ends up being this online college course taught to people by the greats. They actually just announced one by Wayne Gretzky today, which I'm in on. I got to hear him talking about greatness. But if Jimmy Johnson was teaching a masterclass about racing, what would, what would that course look like? What would you teach? I think there are a lot of pieces to being a, a good race car driver. And, you know, for many that watch uh, in tune and occasionally you think of the bravery, first of all, and ultimately, I think that's one of the lower priorities on the list because everybody in a car has, it, it really comes down to work ethic. It comes down to communication skills, being a, a, a member of a team and trying to have the entire team pull the rope in the same direction towards success. Um, it's much more of a team sport than it looks. So, you know, certainly there's raw talent that shows up and you see somebody that's fast or brave, but to really make a career out of racing, there, there are other things that are important. And I would, I would, and I do this now, I try to mentor some young guys from time to time. And, and uh, I focus more on communication and work ethic than I really do the, you know, the technical side inside the race car. What was your GOAT moment, the moment that stands above all else in your career at the top of the mountain? I guess winning seven, you know, that, that seven championship is, uh, it's only been done by Earnhardt and Petty. And the way it happened that night, I only led like one or two laps and they were the last two laps. So it was, uh, you know, it was a come from behind victory and to pull that off and tie those greats meant a lot to me. How about movies? What are some of your race favorite racing movies? Like, are you a Talladega Nights fan, Days of Thunder? What are some of the ones that you really love? Yeah, those two are great. Clearly far different storylines and uh, humor involved. I remember being a kid and loving the movie Six Pack. 
Um, you know, but I would say on a serious note, if people have not seen the movie Senna, um, you need to watch it, even if you're not a Formula One fan. The, the human story, the way it's told, the access that the cameras had, it is, it is an amazing, amazing documentary. Have any of the, the stars from any of these movies, like Will Farrell or Sasha Baron Cohen, do you get reach outs from them once they get to experience either NASCAR or racing culture? Do, you, do they either meet you or see you or reach out to you and just form a kinship? Uh, more just, just kind of glad handing. I mean, I've had a chance to meet them both. Um, I did talk to Will a little bit uh, prior to the filming of Talladega Nights. He was just trying to learn more about the sport. And what was interesting is our conversation was much more serious than the movie ever was. So when I saw the movie, I was a bit, I was like, God, there's, there's nothing serious about this at all. And, and we talked in great detail about the serious nature of it and teams and crew chiefs and all this other stuff. So, uh, and he's, he's actually been to a few races uh, over the years, which has been nice to see him. That's gotta be hilarious. You're like meeting Will Ferrell, talking to him and you're like, Where's the funny Will Ferrell? What's happening here? <laughs> yeah, he definitely goes to an acting place to do that. He's much more serious in real life than you would believe. All right, my final question before I let you go, Jimmy. So a big part of why we started this show was to talk to successful people like you about how they're able to elevate their game. So what do you do to elevate your game and stay at the top of it? I think it all starts with a real conversation with myself maybe the moments in the event or immediately following the event, it's not clear as to what that real conversation needs to be. But usually a day or so later, um, the reality of it in my gut, I know what I did right, and what I did wrong. And really dialing into that, being honest with myself has been the most helpful thing uh, through my career and gives me somewhere to work, somewhere to focus. Um, of course, the things that I do right you're proud of, but I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at those. I focus on the areas I need to improve. And then the work ethic kicks in after, after that. But it all starts with those real conversations with yourself. Are you the hardest worker you think in NASCAR history, would you say? I don't, that's bold. I don't know if I'd say that, but I've accomplished a lot. And I firmly believe I didn't accomplish what I did on raw talent. Um, I've always been a slow learner. My whole peer group of drivers that I've grown up racing with, I was the last one of the dance. But once I figured it out, I had it. So I, I do know that I have a strong work ethic. I am very honest with myself, and that process has yielded a lot of great things. Jimmy, this has been an absolute thrill. Like I told you, you're my all-time favorite in the sport, and just to see what you did off the course is just as revolutionary. Thanks for sitting down, and good luck at Indy, man. Hopefully you're going to go kick some butt over there. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that was, of course, NASCAR GOAT, now IndyCar driver and one of the best to ever do it, Jimmy Johnson. I hope you guys learned as much from that as I did. I mean, the, the fascinating thing is the NASCAR drivers, when you talk to them, you get such an authentic and raw look at what life is like for those guys. And for Jimmy, it was just fascinating to understand the mindset and the journey of one of the greatest to ever do it. And you really do understand the drive that goes into this. You don't just become Jimmy Johnson accidentally. There's an enormous drive. And just talking to him, you could feel the intensity, the seriousness, 
He was on the racetrack training for his next Indy race and took time out of his day, and that was just awesome. Thank you, Jimmy. Absolute honor. Our next guest, I'd mentioned this at the top of the show. I just had Dana White on the show, and he agreed. Kamaru Usman is the number one fighter on the planet. I recorded this interview with Kamaru before having Dana on the show, and Dana and I talked all about the Kamaru influence, but he's the baddest man on the planet. He's a UFC welterweight champion. He is an incredible, incredible physical specimen. Kamaru's story, and you guys are going to hear it in this interview, is absolutely remarkable. He won the Ultimate Fighter, which... Extra plug for Dana. I'll be plugging this in his interview as well. But the Ultimate Fighter is back after two years. But Kamaru Usman ends up winning the Ultimate Fighter. He starts his journey in UFC and is now the baddest man on the planet. His journey with his dad, and I think this is going to really mean a lot to a lot of people, his father ended up going to prison for like a decade. And Kamaru obviously maintains that he was wrongly accused. But the impact that Kamaru had on his dad and his fellow inmates was just incredible. He wouldn't take pay-per-view fights because his dad and the inmates couldn't watch him fight. I mean, it's incredible stuff. And then being able, when his dad was out of prison, and you guys can look this up, being able to put the belt around him after his most recent knockout of Jorge Masvidal was just such a heartwarming moment. The thing that I hope you guys really appreciate that I appreciated through this interview with Kamaru Usman is how incredibly thoughtful and articulate and introspective he is, but also how charming and charismatic. I mean, the guy is going to have an incredible career in broadcasting after this is done. And there is a moment, and I don't want to spoil this for you. As you watch this interview, you think to yourself, how can this guy annihilate people the way that he does? Because he's so mild-mannered and so soft-spoken. And his answer about being able to turn the switch on and off as a professional athlete is just mind-numbing. And it just shows you just how these guys are able to compartmentalize when they're at the top of their game. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. I absolutely had a blast. This guy is awesome. Here he is, Kamaro Usman. It is a big day on The Endless Hustle. First of all, it's my birthday today, and I'm joined by someone who just celebrated his birthday, although I have almost a decade on you, Kamaru Usman, but you have more championship belts, so we'll call it even. (laughs) Happy birthday, by the way. Thanks, man, and the same to you. Congrats. You're coming off an absolutely electric fight. You are now the pound-for-pound best fighter in MMA. You are the welterweight champion. Life isn't too shabby, is it? It isn't. It isn't. But it, it's it's one of those things to where I can't really uh, dive into and, and soak up too much because that X on my back just got a whole lot bigger. So as I have to basically still be on my 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 P's and and, and Q's and, and definitely make sure that I don't I don't slip at all because now I know everyone's gunning for me, which they've been gunning for me for a while, but it's even bigger now. So walk me through, you obviously have this incredible performance with Masvidal. How much time do you actually get to celebrate? Do you get to party for a few nights? Or are you right back in the gym? I would love to be able to do that. And the crazy thing is, it's part of, I guess it's part of what keeps me going is 
I think about that before the fight. I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to be able to party. I can't wait to be able to just hang out and eat food and lay around all day. I can't, that's, that's my party. That's really what drives me is that being the ability to just lay down on the couch and eat whatever I want and just hang out all day. But that's very short lived. As soon as I get home, I am just, I'm a victim of, of the, the, the game. I'm a victim of the game because as soon as I get home, I'm on the couch literally for maybe a day and um, take my daughter to school, pick her up from school, hang out, eat. Then I'm like, wow, well, what's, what's going on? I'm kind of bored. You know, I drop her off the next day and I'm really bored. I'm like, all right, let me just, let me just go in the gym and see what's, what's going on in there. <laughs> and then I end up hitting the bag. I end up training, getting a good hard sweat. Next thing you know, I'm calling my manager. Hey, um, so what are you thinking? <laughs> and so it's very short lived. I, I wish I had more time to actually go home and just sit at home and do nothing. But, you know, I, right now that I'm able to still do this and perform, I got to take advantage of it. You're a victim of the craft. You're a victim Absolutely. of your own excellence. And I love that. There's there are certain people that you can see are going to be champions or top competitors for a long time. You're one of those because some people rise to the top, but then the partying and the fame overtakes them. But just to hear you have that answer, you're going to be doing this for a long time. When did this become an obsession for you? When did you realize that wrestling, MMA, this would become your life? Uh, I think June, the my junior, the summer of my junior year, going into my senior year in high school. That's really the, the time where I made the decision that I was going to be good at this. I, my junior year, I, I did okay. And I didn't make it to the regional tournament. And then the state tournament, I didn't make it there. And it kind of hurt me a little bit because I, I wanted it. Because that, that was the highest thing in high school. That was the first time I set a goal for something that I wanted and I actually kind of cared about it. And then after that, I said, well, I need to do, what do I need to do? What is the only thing that I can do in order for me to make sure that next year I achieve that? I become the state champion in high school. And it was go to camps, wrestle through the summer. And so I started doing that. I went to camps and they were okay, but how do I get better at those camps? How do I get better in the camps? How do I do this? How do I get better at that? And I started watching videos. I started studying, doing some research and seeing that guys run, guys do this, guys do this type of training guy. And I'm just like, all right, if that guy that was very good, he did that, I'm doing it too. So I just kind of started doing certain things. And over time, it just kind of started to be this, this slow inclination that I was winning some of those matches that were tough, that were seemed very, very tough before. They weren't that tough anymore. I started to get through that. Then at that point, that summer, I came back and I realized I wanted to, I said, I want this. I really want this. And that's when I discovered setting a goal and actually doing whatever it took to achieve that goal. When did you realize you were elite? Because there's gotta be a moment where you're just like, I'm not just good at this, I'm a champion. I still don't think that <laughs> it's funny. I still don't think that I watch certain people like my teammate Rose Nama Yunus. Uh, I watch her train and I'm just like, wow, she's elite. She's good at this. And they say that about me, but I'm like, I'm not that good at this. I'm, I, 
I'm my biggest fan, but at the same time, I am my biggest critic to where I still, honestly, I still don't think that I'm elite at this, but I see certain people and I'm like, they're, they're elite. So I think that's, it, it's got me to this point with that attitude. I'm going to keep that and, and see how far I can go with it. This is the curse of all great people in any profession. Joan Rivers, one of the greatest comedians of all time, talks about how every day she was worried about getting her next job. It's that mentality that drives you. Are you worried each and every day? Like, is it over for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Each and every day, each and every fight, I'm worried about that. I go into the fight, I'm thinking, oh, man. This last guy, this guy said he was going to baptize me. Oh, crap. Can he baptize me? Is he going to baptize me? How is this going to go? I worry about that all the time. To even the first time I fought him in Fight Island, I, had, I was in my room before getting picked up to go to the arena for the fight. And it was probably the most nervous I've ever been. And I'm sitting in my room and I'm thinking, wow, I just watched this on Sports Center. This guy said he was going to baptize me. He said he's gonna knock me out unconscious. Oh my God, I'm, I was afraid, I was worried, I was shocked, but I had to hone all that. I'm just like, all right, just, just breathe through it and smile through it and just go out there and, and let your body take over. And that's what I try to do each and every time because I am worried that each fight would be my, each fight could be my last fight. I'm absolutely blown away. So this is the first time we've ever spoken. You are an assassin in the octagon. I mean, you're a genetically engineered human designed to kill people pretty much physically. To see you speak right now, how soft-spoken, how humble, how relaxed you are, it feels like I'm witnessing two different people. Is there a switch for you? And how do you engage that switch where you go from calm, peaceful Kamara Usman to I'm going to destroy you, Kamara Usman? It's, uh, it's funny that I was just talking about that. Um, I think I, I was always, I was always um, the athlete, the, 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 train, the, the trained fighter or wrestler. And, and I, that was it. That's what I always did. I always wanted to do. And, and I was always on to where it didn't smile much. I was always, I was always on. And it wasn't until my daughter came that and it took a little bit you know she, she became a couple months old it was just like wow i would walk in a room and her eyes were on me the whole time and i'm just like i walk around and she would just follow me to where now i'm getting older she's looking at me she lays on me and she broke me to the point where she can flip that switch just like that when i can be that's the thing with me is I can train in and, and when I go out for fights, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, of course, but the closer I get to that octagon, the more grand I get, the more confident I get my emotions and, and, and this, this giant builds on the inside. And then you will see there's a moment before I cross into the octagon, I would stay there. I would say my prayers. Then once I cross that threshold into the octagon, I am the Nigerian nightmare. This is my octagon. I am the king of that, that arena. And you see it. I flip that. I can transform and be that guy. And then my daughter is literally the only person in the world that can come through and just turn it off like that instantly. Flip. And you see it in the last fight. After the fight, I'm just 
the, the adrenaline and the testosterone is just pouring out of me as I'm, I don't even remember what I was doing. I, at one point I remember I was at the top of the cage. I was over the cage. I was walking around and then I was back in the cage and I, I, I was beating on my chest at one point, like King Kong. And I, and next thing I know, I turn around, she's right in front of me. And I just, just boom, get all mellow and, and mushy. And she just killed it. And that's the effect that she has on me. But she has, she gets Kamaru Usman daddy all day. But when we're training and I step inside that octagon, they get the Nigerian nightmare. That's awesome. I want to talk to you about your relationship with your father because it's obviously been well publicized. And essentially, to put it in perspective, you fight for him. And to see you put that belt around your father's waist after this last fight was just such a humbling and magical moment. It's one of those, it's how you kind of grow up. And, and it's, it's what you, you see, what you, your, the circumstances and the, the things that you witness that basically creates that bond. And with my father, my father, I, I just, he worked so hard all through his life in order to be able to ensure that we have the opportunities that we have. Had my father not taken the risks and, uh, and the things that he did, had he not gone to school and, and studied and trained to where he was able to make a living for us or bring us to, the, to this country. And it, it was, you know, I don't know where we would be. And so all of that is what makes him a great man and him giving us the opportunity, the giving us the, 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 the chance to be able to live this life, to, to achieve what I've achieved. It's, I have to be thankful and I have to be grateful and gracious in that. And, you know, for me, this is the pursuit of happiness here is being able to now return that favor being able to make my dad smile and proud, giving him this overwhelming joy that he can't explain. And it's hopefully I get to feel that one day with my daughter. So I think that that's one of the biggest things for us athletes is being able to give our family and our parents and our fathers that overwhelming joy that they just can't help it. They can't explain it. When I see the shape you're in, it is mind blowing. You literally do not look human. And I mean that in the best possible way. I could, I could eat perfectly, work out like an animal and I'm not looking like you. How, what's your nutrition and fitness regimen like? Um, part of that, I would have to say, I have to thank mom and dad for, <laughs> for, for the genetics. Um, but my, my fitness and nutrition is something that I've, I've, I've really worked on for years and years. It's not just, it didn't happen yesterday. It's not one of those things where I take a year off and then it's like, all right, I need to diet. I need to get in shape. I, I have to constantly be in shape because I have to be ready to compete at any given time. And I would tell you a secret. One of the biggest fears for me, and I would say one of the biggest motivators for me is that feeling of having to get back into shape so bad for me to where I'd rather be in shape. I'd rather deal with the pain of being in shape all year round. Because when you have to work back from scratch to get to that point where you are actually in shape, it is the worst. <laughs> it is the worst. And so I, I definitely, I, I would say, um, I think that feeling is, 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 is more of a deterrent for me to why I, I gotta I have to stay in shape in some sort of shape.
what's he eating like? What is the daily regimen, the weekly regimen look like? Now the eating's not, it's not bad. I guess when I, when I really start to, when I've seen a lot of friends and dissected certain things to where now I realize my eating is necessarily not that bad for me, where I consider it's not the greatest, but it's still not that bad. Mostly what I eat is carbohydrates like rice, pasta, but chicken and, and turkey clean, like lean meats and, and things like that. I'm not a big sweets guy. I never have been. I will say though, with age, I'm starting to like chocolate chip cookies a little bit more. <laughs> That's starting to be a thing now. But as far as like dessert and cakes and pies and things of like that, I'm not a fan. I never really liked candy or, or those things. And I never, I just not really into oily and fried stuff all the time. And so by me eating the way that I do, it makes it a lot easier for me to have to get in shape when I need to, even though it's still painful and I don't want to do it. I, I, that's a, that's a thing for me is it makes it a lot easier for me than someone who does indulge in, in some of those other donuts and, and things like that. I want to talk to you about Africa because growing up to look at the athletes that made it from Africa, my age, it was like Manute Bowl. It was Hakeem Olajuwon. And there were a few here and there. But to see what's happened now, you and Ganu, now you have Giannis in the NBA, you have Bobo. There's so many now elite athletes that come from Africa, Joel Embiid. What has been the reaction on the continent to the success that people like you and Ngannou are bringing there? It's, it's, I'm just, I'm, all I can sum it up to is say that I'm blessed to be in this time and era to be able to witness this. Nowadays, it's very rare for some people, someone to say, oh, they're the first to do anything or that they were part of something so special and so great. So to be in this time and in this, this era, it means a lot. I mean, I'm looking at guys like um, I actually last weekend, I, I got the chance to meet uh, Andre and Guadala for the first time and, and Giannis and, and Thanasis, his brother, and got a chance to meet with them and, and hang out and, and actually watch them perform. It's, it's special. It's very special. Sometimes I don't feel like it's real. I, I got to pinch myself. Like, are we really in this? Are we doing this right now? Is this real? Are we in this present day and time to witness a great, great, at these great athletes all across the board? And of course, someone like Francis Ngannou, for someone like that to be able to have that much incredible power, it is, it is mind-blowing. And I am humbled each and every time I am around each and every one of them, whether it's Israel Adesanya, whether it's the Bastianis and Thanasis and Joel Embiid and all these guys, I am blessed. I am a fan and I, I'm just blown away to be able to see how, how well these guys um, do what they do and how much they are motivating the world. There's a great picture on social media of you standing next to Giannis. And people do not realize, it's easy to see him on TV, but when you see him in real life, what was your reaction seeing him in real life for the first time? That doesn't look real. Like that's, that's a real person? I mean, it's like, how are you that big? <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, there's no way you, like, 
I was, I grew too, but you came out of your mother. Like, how are you this big? I, I don't understand it. And some of these guys, I'm just, I, I'm amazed by how big they are and how coordinated they are and, and how much of athletes they can be. It's impressive. And it, it, it just, the human body is something that's crazy. It's a crazy thing. Does he geek out over you? Because you essentially at this point have now become an A-list sports celebrity yourself. Is there a geek out from Giannis and like, holy shit, I just met Usman? I I, I don't know. I, I think I get that more, a little bit more from his brother because me and his brother have kind of been in touch here and there before, you know, through social media and, and texts and things like that. So to actually see them and meet him, I think his brother gave me more of that. But Giannis, I mean, and it was a day before a game. So, you know, he's probably reserved and probably his mind was on the game. But some people do do that. Some, some I've had some athletes, some basketball players do that. And it's, it's humbling to me every single time. It's, it's like, oh, me? And they're like, bro, can I get a picture with you? <laughs> I'm just blown away. And I'm, I'm in awe each and every time having to witness that. So I don't know. I, I don't know if Giannis felt like that. But I mean, for me, I was definitely grateful to be able to meet him and his brother, Thanasis. I think they're incredible athletes. That whole family are incredible athletes. And yes, we, we, we definitely bonded. And, and we're, you know, this is the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship and relationship that is going to blossom into something special. I remember when I read that ESPN story on you and your dad, I think it was last year, and just you requesting not to do pay-per-view fights so that your dad could be able to watch it while he was in prison. When you realize the impact you had on the people around your dad inside of that prison, what, what goes through your mind knowing that a whole, a whole prison was watching you fight. Once again, it, it's that pursuit of happiness for me. It, it's the moment I learned visiting my father. I mean, the first time, first couple of times I visited him, it was, of course, he's there and, and no one really knew me. Um, of course, I'm sure my dad would talk about yeah my son's an athlete and this and that but they you know those guys don't necessarily care or believe they're like all right yeah everyone says that you know and and then i figure out oh well you guys get to watch these channels here and and he's like yeah yeah we watch they, that that fighting thing that you do that mma it's on on here people watch that people are fans of that here i'm like oh okay light bulb went off so fast forward to where I finally got the opportunity to do the show, The Ultimate Fighter, which happened to be on that channel. And I'm like, oh my God, my dad gets to watch this. Yes, all right. So I go out there and I do the show. Then the next time after the show, I go and visit my father. There's a line. Like all the, some of the inmates there and some of the people that were there, friends of my dad, they were, uh, their families were there as well. So they had notified, my father had notified them that I was coming. So they had notified their families that I was coming. So basically I was in there taking pictures with their families. And I'm like, and the joy that I could see that my father gets from that, being able to make other people happy and me being able to make them happy just by something as simple as taking a picture with them and talking to them, letting them meet me, letting them touch me. It, it, it it was monumental for me to let me know that I was doing the right thing. 
And to this day, which is why each and every fight I had, the first thing I would ask is, is that on, on regular, what channel is that on cable TV or is that on network? Like, can my dad watch this? And my manager was like, yep, it's on Fox. We can, we can, we can watch that. I'm like, all right, I'm in there. I'm, I'm doing it. If it was on, if it was pay-per-view, no, nah, I'm not really interested. Or if it was on, on fight, the, the internet channel, no, nah, I'm not really interested. I want to do it on, on Fox to where my father can watch this. That's awesome. So Connor was just named the highest paid athlete in the world. And you think about the list, you have Ronaldo, you have LeBron. For Connor to top that list tells you how far the UFC and MMA has come. And also the branding and business opportunities that come outside of the sport. Now, I've had Chuck Liddell on the show. I've had George St. Pierre, who's now on, a, on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. To see what this sport allows you to now create outside of it is incredible. And it's only getting bigger and bigger. So now that you've become this mainstream star, what are the opportunities for you that are opening up? Are the, is the phone ringing for movie roles, for endorsements? Like what happens now? Yeah, I mean, there's, the opportunities are, are, are endless. It's just learning how to maximize them in the right way. And that's what now my team is working very hard on is because you can't say yes to everything. There's only so much time that you have. You just have to be able to make sure that you're saying yes to the right things and, and not know and or not saying yes to the wrong things that will waste time. And that's why I trust my team in being able to do. But yes, um, I am grateful and blessed that a lot of doors have been open to where now I'm getting that opportunity to be able to do different things because to be honest, I don't want to be punched in the face for the rest of my life. I don't, I don't necessarily want to do that forever. <laughs> and so now having this sport elevate me to a place where I'm shown to the masses and I can do other things. Like I like to sell shoes, Nike. I can sell shoes. You know, I could do that. I like to, you know, be in movies and do things like that. So we are getting those opportunities and I'm just grateful. I'm just blessed to be in this time. Is there something that's like on the dream list, like an actor you want to work with, a, a, an athlete you want to do a commercial with? What's kind of that bucket list item for you? That's a, that's a good question. I haven't necessarily really thought of that. But of course, I mean, you're talking about an actor. Of course, I would love to do something with Denzel Washington. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? Denzel Washington, um, I'm talking... Uh, Idris Elba, I would love to to do a movie or something like that with these these men because those, these are men that I look up to in that world. And then of course, I mean, commercial doing something with Michael Jordan and doing something with LeBron and do these these guys. These are some of the biggest superstars that you're growing up and you're watching and you're seeing and you start to you want to be like and getting that opportunity to actually do that. Mind blowing mind-blowing and I just I can't wait I always love talking to elite athletes about what sports they love outside of their own sport the one that always gets touched on is golf so I'm like I wonder if you play golf do you have any love for golf or no I have very very much respect and admiration for it because a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is and I just recently found out how difficult it is and by it being that difficult, it makes me want to sink my teeth in it further. And so it, it's definitely one of those things to where I want to get better at and I want to learn. 
but I would say my favorite is track and field. I love track and field. I love watching this, the explosion of the, the, these guys and, and men and women actually show how fast and how explosive they are in, in the world of track and field. And that I would say absolutely by far my favorite sport to watch is track and field. That's fascinating. That's like not one you hear often. I was like thinking, I'm like, if I could give you a draw, dream golf experience, what would you want to do? Like, would you want to play with somebody? Is there a course? Do you know about the Masters? Like, I do know. Um, obviously, I would say just playing. Playing. Uh, obviously, I'd have to learn how to play first. And if I got okay enough to be able to play, playing eighteen holes with Tiger Woods and talking with him and and just getting to know his mind is 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 one that I definitely will put on that bucket list because, and thanks, thankful, thanks to Michael Jordan actually sharing his, opening up his mind to sharing with us when we watched uh, the documentary, The Last Dance, that you got to, you know, obviously learn a little bit more about the, you know, inside his mind and how he approached the game. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, I think, yeah, Tiger Woods, golf, when he comes in that realm of golf, Tiger Woods, being able to just play 18 holes with him and just be open, free, and, and really indulge in his mind. I think that you can pay. I, there's, I don't think there's an amount of money that I could pay for something like that. You know, that's fascinating. Like, what would you want to know? You're a champion yourself. And it's funny because you make it to the top of the mountain and to hear you still want to learn more because I'll never be as good at something as you are at what you do. But every time you talk to somebody who's that good, they tell you it's all up here. It's more than this. It's this. What would you want to hear from someone like Tiger Woods about how to become even greater? I think it's, it's at the highest level, there's, there's not a lot that separates everyone. It's a razor sharp, the razor thin that separates the first from 15th place. And some of those guys just have it. And they know it. And for me, it's partially getting confirmation from those guys that this is exactly how you feel in certain times in certain places. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is I want to know. I want to know that what I feel is normal. So I want to know that what I feel, they felt. And they know how to, to persevere through that. I think that right there, that affirmation, that reassurance it's something that you can't buy. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's you, it could be your mom or your dad telling you like, you're going to win. You're going to be the best. Just do this. You do that. It's going to work. It's not the same as someone who has done it at the highest level telling you that. It's not the same. And I think that definitely is what I would want to learn is just basically knowing in his mind, him letting me know that what you feel is normal. I felt that too. That right there is priceless, priceless for me. Tiger obviously battled his own demons and fame was a big part of that. He, you know, when you see the Tiger documentary on HBO, you see how hard it is to not understand what normality is. Fame is hard, man. I interview the biggest stars in all genres on the planet. And I always tell people fame is freaking hard. You seem so level-headed. How are you able to kind of keep the shield around you as now this fame is seeping in? Yeah, you touched on it perfectly. It's hard. It's very, very difficult. For me, this was never really the, the goal. This was never really the plan. 
I never really wanted fame. If you gave me an option, take fame over the money, I would take the money every time. I would rather be in a, in a, in a room to be the, I would rather be the richest one in the room and have no one know it than be the most known person in the room and not have money. And that's just kind of the thing, how I roll. I never wanted to be famous. That was never the driving force behind what I was doing. I just wanted to be the best at it. And now it's more than just being the best. Now you get to that point and everyone knows who you are. And it's just, it's so, it's so consuming because everybody wants a piece of that. Everyone is chasing that in, in the field in every way whether it's a guy that works at a desk, he wants to be the best in that office. For most people, that's, the, that's what they want. They want to be recognized as the best in the office and as the best in their field, whatever they're doing. And so when they see someone who is considered the best, they want to take a little bit of that energy. I guess which is partially why I would love to play with Tiger Woods. He's considered the best at that. I want a little piece of that energy. You know, that's attractive to people. People just want to touch you. People want to want to feel that energy. And that's hard because you have to get, you give in that energy away. You give so much away to where when you come home at the end of the day, it's just like, I have nothing left for myself. I'm just drain then you become kind of a prisoner of that fame. I don't really necessarily like to go out much, which is a good thing for me, which is kind of what helps me is I was never really the guy who I wanted to be out and, and about and things like that. I was always a homebody. Now I'm really a homebody because it doesn't matter where you go, where I step into. They see someone's, you. Someone's going to see, see you. you. Someone's going to come up. Someone's going to say something. And, and of course, and, and, it's not just hard for me, it's hard for the family too, because if I'm trying to spend time with my, my girlfriend and my daughter and we're somewhere and we're eating, we're engaged in the conversation, a, a great conversation, and all of a sudden three people come up, hey, champ, right in the middle of your conversation, can I get a picture with you? Hey, I love you and this. And of course, people just want to have their conversation, which is not nothing wrong with that. You know, it's not every day that people see someone that they, idolize or that they you know they have, see if someone that's famous and so they just want that time that energy and so now I have to give them that energy and it takes away from my family so it's, it's extremely difficult and I still can't even imagine what someone like Tiger Woods had to go through or Michael Jordan had to go through because I watched their stories and I'm just like what I have to deal with is nothing compared nothing. to what these guys have to deal and, with. And Mike Tyson, another one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, and this, this is the thing with me is I, I like to think that I hide sometimes in plain sight. I still try to go to the grocery. I go to the grocery store by myself sometimes. And I'm being a grocery store. I, of course, I have a hat on and maybe glasses. And I still get noticed. And then people just, but most of the time, people walk by and just, I don't know, it's normal. Because I'm. I'm not physically like you're not your a monster. Face. Yeah, you're yeah. not a monster. I'm not a Francis Ngannou. I'm right. I'm I'm still somewhat normal and regular. So where people can kind of walk by me and go, oh, he's fit. Just walk by. And but when people do realize and they're like, oh. And people kind of they give me that double take, that look. Nah. But I've had people come up, 
what are you doing here? I'm like, just shopping, just getting groceries. They're like, you shop? You do this? Yeah, I shop too. I do this. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this. You shop and you do groceries. I'm like, yeah, I'm still kind of normal. Like I go to the bathroom, I put my pants on, I do yeah, all the stuff you guys I do. do. Don't I, worry. I, I do those things too. And it's 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 always humbling to me to be able to see that. But it's um those kind of guys, though they they can't do that. They can't. And it's it's not all it's cracked up to be, is all I have to say. It's not all it's cracked up to be. How do you continue to elevate both in and out of the octagon? For me, I think the biggest, um, the biggest thing is the way I see myself. People now, people are like, oh my God, you're the greatest, you're this, you're that, you're the best. But I don't see myself that way. I still see myself as the, the, the rookie who was getting into this and said, okay, I'm going to be good at that. How do I become good at that? And each and every time I'm, I'm working and I'm training, I'm trying to be better at something. I still feel that way. And I try not to get ahead of myself because everyone goes, oh man, you're 10 fights in a row. You're about to break this record or that record. I don't worry about that. I worry about the next guy because if I'm able to take care of the next guy and the next guy and the next guy, guess what? Those records will pile up. And so that's where I, I put my focus in. I, I never worry about the overall. I worry about the steps right in front of me. And I think over time, I didn't choose to be where I am. I didn't necessarily choose that. I think that obviously there's a higher power that put me in a position to where now I am in that place, to where people can see me and draw inspiration from me as I drew inspiration from the wrestlers or the fighters before me. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm blessed. And now knowing that I, I am part of that, that group, I am, I, I definitely understand it. And I do not take it for granted because I understand. And I know that with great power does come responsibility. And I'm fully aware of that. And I am trying to be responsible and knowing that there are others that look up to me that want to be in the position that I want to be in. So I need to be able to show them how to do it gracefully. Dude, I had no idea what to expect with you. I've seen your post fight interviews and you come off very thoughtful and articulate, but obviously the adrenaline's coming through you, but to see how humble and relaxed and articulate you are, you have such an incredible career of broadcasting ahead of you. You are going to be perfect for TV. And I'm sure there are probably already people approaching you around that, but you just have a great personality, man. And your success is, I mean, you're an absolute monster and I love watching you fight. And I became, I love the MMA in general, but in the UFC, but I remember when I saw your last few, your last few fights, I'm like, this guy's going to be one of the goats and congratulations on all of your success. It's really incredible to see what you're doing, man. Thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm humbled by your words and I'm more than appreciative of them. So thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. Good luck with the next fight, whoever it is. Oh, before I let you go, your thoughts on Logan Paul, Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a circus, but at the end of the day, that's the world that we're in now. People just want to be entertained. And so these guys are doing the best they can. I mean, it's the perfect era, perfect time for them. People are, we're going through something that we've never really seen, a pandemic, people being locked up, people just wanting to be entertained in their life. And here comes the YouTubers, 
they're here to entertain and it's received very well. I, I do believe as, as a competitive standpoint, I mean, Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest boxers that we're going to ever see in our time. And so for him to now just want to just entertain the masses, I love it. I more power to him. Um, if I'm put in that position, would I do the same thing for the amount of money he's making? Probably <laughs> I would definitely do the same thing. So yeah, more power to them. Um, it's great. Great for entertainment. Great to entertain the people. I'm definitely going to watch. Now, I don't know if I'm going to buy it. I might go to a friend's house who's buying it, but I'm definitely going to watch it for sure. What do you think the result is? Let me get a prediction from you. Uh, I just, I, it's, Floyd's just too good at this to where I think, uh, I mean, if anything, he knows how to be able to not get hit, which has been his specialty for over 25 years. So as long as he does that, I think he takes it. Awesome. Kamara, it's been a pleasure, man. You're welcome back anytime, man. Thank you. I appreciate this. I really do. All right, folks, that was UFC welterweight champion, the baddest man on the planet, and someone who's arguably going to end up being one of the greatest fighters of all time, Kamaru Usman. What an impressive, impressive man. Kamaru, thank you for a fabulous interview. Thank you for the rawness and the inspiration. You really are the model for what a UFC fighter should look like. And also, guys, and you'll hear this from the Dana White interview as well, both Kamaro and Francis Ngannou, what they are doing in terms of bringing an international and African presence to MMA is just, it's, it's insane. And Dana talked a lot about it in our interview. Africa is a huge hotbed right now for the UFC and where they're transitioning to. So really great getting a fighter's perspective. And I can't wait for you guys to hear Dana White's perspective, the boss versus the employee and how they both see that transition happening. Our final guest is one of the biggest stars on social media. She's got like 11.3 million followers on Instagram. Incredible. But she's also become a successful actress. I'm talking about Inanna Sarkis. She's got a new movie out, Seance. It's available in select theaters on digital and VOD. This was such a great chat. As an old man myself, I'm always fascinated by this new generation of social media stars. Well, someone like Inanna not only built her social media presence and a brand around that, but she's now transitioning very successfully into the acting world. Seance is getting a lot of buzz. And you'll see from this interview that nothing that has happened in Inanna's life is accidental. Everything is thought out. Her brand is very well crafted. She surrounds herself with the best people she can. And she has a mindset that she's in it to win it. And I really appreciated being able to dig into how someone like her was able to start from nowhere and build this incredible brand. And it's only getting bigger. So here she is, social media star and seance star, Nana Sarkis. And Nana Sarkis, you get asked probably the same freaking question every time someone talks to you. But you are the perfect example of what this Gen Z actress, entrepreneur, mother, I mean, you do everything and it's pretty astounding to me because as a, a guy who just turned 43, I can barely get myself dressed in the morning. So <laughs> how the heck do you juggle this all? 
<laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I ask myself the same question. <laughs> no, I just, I think it's like a lot of time management for sure. And organizing my days, having a nice whiteboard with all my goals and um, monthly uh, schedules and weekly schedules. So definitely <laughs> organization is key for me or else I would be a disaster. So you got this new movie seance out. So congrats on that. Thank you. you you're really the perfect example, as I mentioned before. You've got over 11 million Instagram followers, this incredible social media following. You are the new age actor. So for you, how were you able to essentially say, I'm more than a social media star. Hey, take me seriously as an actress. Yeah, I think that was something that I struggled with a lot um, over the past few years because when I first started doing YouTube and stuff, it wasn't taken seriously at all. And it was a struggle to kind of tell my team that, okay, I wanna move away from this, but still obviously have a balance because it is super important. Um, I think it's just like really having a set vision for myself and um, taking myself seriously and knowing what kind of roles I wanna play and having that in, in the back of my mind, even when I'm doing posting or like certain videos and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think it's just knowing what you want and striving towards that. I'm fascinated because, so on Monday I had Andrew McCarthy on the show and I don't know if you know Andrew McCarthy is because you are younger, but he was one of the, the biggest stars of the eighties. He made movies like Weekend at Bernie's, Mannequin, Pretty in Pink. You would know him as soon as you saw him. Now he's a director. He's essentially an eighties icon, but he was part of what was called the Brat Pack. And that mm -hmm. was like him, Demi Moore, Rob Lowe. And there was a mystery around these, these actors and actresses where with social media, we don't see that now. So mm -hmm. is there, obviously you have to lay your world out to your fans, but is there ever a want to create a mystery kind of like we saw in the eighties and the seventies where you don't want to give certain parts of yourself over? Yeah. I, I feel like I struggle with that every day where I'm like, am I showing too much? Should I not post as often? And it's again, like a balance. I was just thinking about that yesterday where I'm like, what, how often should I post a week? Um, should I not be, should I not be showcasing certain parts of my life as much? Um, what about if I'm auditioning for a role and a director come, goes on my Instagram and sees something that like, maybe he wouldn't want the actor to, I don't know, portray or whatever it is. And I'm constantly battling that because I'm like, what if I'm auditioning for a role that's like nothing like how I am portraying myself online? would that steer the, the director or the producers away from possibly casting me? Um, and I think that's something that we deal with today that other actors didn't deal with as much before because of the mystery element. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's like a balance and, and struggle each day to try and figure out what you can and cannot post or what you should and should not post. Um, but yeah, I kind of just got to take it as it is because I feel like social media does help at the end of the day a lot with um, hopefully getting roles and like being able to push your own movies and in, in ways that um, actors weren't able to before like it's like our own platform of promoting ourselves and promoting our films and stuff that we're in so there's like a win and a, and a lose I guess. <laughs> so walk me through the thinking process as someone who does not have 11 million Instagram followers I have 5,500 <laughs> when you're thinking about what you're going to post, walk me through that thought process. How does it begin to the point where you hit post? <laughs> I mean, it depends. If it's just like, 
I just got back from like my, my uh, birthday vacation. So if it's something that's just like fun and I was away on a trip, it's more so just like finding the right photo and like kind of creating now there's like, um, what is it slides? So you can post like a series of like five photos. So for me right now, I just like creating little stories in my posts um, to help like my fans kind of feel like they came on the trip with me and like have a little more insight on like what my day was like or something. So if it was jet skiing, I would do like, I don't know, like a post of me on the jet ski and then maybe like one of the ocean and then another one of like my friends falling off the jet ski or I don't know, just kind of telling a little mini story with a post is is um the way I like kind of find find a little fun with it now. It's like how strategic are you? So like I'm the worst, by the way. So let me just clarify <laughs> this because I post way too much, which is why I think my follower count sucks. Because I, I interview <laughs> all the biggest movie stars on the planet. I should have like 16 million followers. And people are just like, I'm the worst strategically. So I'm learning from you at the moment. Do you say I can only post once a day, three times a week? I've got to mix it from personal to movie. Like, how does it all work? I think you just got to know your audience and just test it out. Like, don't be scared to test it out one week, maybe try. For me, definitely not multiple times a day. I tried that and it's just, it doesn't show as much interest. Um, I post at 9 a.m., 8 to 9 a.m. every morning if I'm going to post. But I try and do maybe like three times a week, four times a week. And it depends if I'm like, for this, like the movie's coming out. So I'm definitely gonna like post the poster and um, promote that. So I don't know for you, I guess you're, I don't know how your audience is. Maybe I would suggest mixing it up, like work with personal. That's kind of what works for me because if you put too much stuff that's work, then people are just like, okay, we get it. Like you're acting, you're doing this. Like we wanna, sh we wanna see a little bit more about your everyday and like who you really are as a person. So I think it's very important mixing your work with your personal life. And obviously the personal life that you want to show um, and yeah, and having like a balance of both. All right. So where did it begin for you? So at what point do you start realizing I can build this following? Like it's, you weren't always at 11 million. You didn't have 3 million something YouTube subscribers. Where's the moment where you're like, I can build an audience. It was definitely when I started doing YouTube. So I started on Vine, which I don't know if you remember or do you remember? Yeah, no, I'm not that old. I'm not that old at <laughs> all. You know what that is. <laughs> so I started there um, and I thought it was a joke. I was like, this is so like mindless. I'm just doing these like six second videos that aren't really doing anything. And I moved out here to be a traditional actress. So I was never thinking about the digital world at all. Um, so when I started on Vine, I just kind of started collaborating with a bunch of people that were already big on the platform. And then Facebook and YouTube um, came about and YouTube was something that excited me more because you can do longer content. And I started creating like, oh, I can make like little short films on this and produce my own content and create roles for myself, hopefully. So that was kind of when I started building more of my platform. And I think it relied heavily on just collaborating, cross collaborating with other influencers and creators, which helps a lot. So if, if I have another friend that has like 4 million and I only have like a million YouTube subscribers and we'd kind of do a video together and cross promote each other, that definitely grew my following to another level. The same went with, with Instagram. I had a, a group of friends that we would all literally every day, just like create content. Like every single day we'd, we'd create like two videos for me, two videos for her, two videos for the other friend. And we'd all just be in each other's videos. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where it started and how we started growing a lot. What, when do you start seeing traction? Is it immediate or is it like a year later and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, 
oh crap, like a hundred thousand people are following me. No, it definitely is immediate. Like at one point I was growing like a hundred thousand followers in a day. It was crazy. So, um, you, you see your analytics as the days go by. And, um, when I was growing like a lot, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like, how is this even happening? And we just continued creating the content. And then over time you're like, whoa, it just went from like a hundred thousand to like 2 million in like less than a year. So, um, yeah, you just kind of see it slowly progress. I think. Here's what I'm loving really chatting with you because people don't realize how much strategy and thought goes into what you just, it's essentially like you're a producer for lack of a better word. So when people say, oh, you're just a social media star, but you know how much strategic thought, planning, action, execution had to go into what you, the brand you've created. Mm -hmm. How do you relay that, that no, I'm much more than a social media star. I did have to put my whole life into creating this brand. Yeah, I think I just relate it to how movies and shows are made, but on a way smaller scale. So like my YouTube videos are very much like the last ones I posted was a series. It was six episode series. So the same way you would create like a TV series, I kind of did that, but on a way smaller scale. So I had to physically sit down and write all the scripts out. Like I work on a script basis, all my videos, I have had scripts then I have to go and like figure out the production and figure out who I'm casting in it. Obviously they're built with like no budget. So that's kind of the difference in scale. Um, and I'm pretty much doing all the jobs. So I'm like directing, I'm casting, I'm acting in it. And then I have to, I've spent like countless hours editing. I used to edit all my YouTube videos and I have like 50 plus videos on there. So it's a lot of time. And for people that are just like, oh, you're just like, girl, you're following. Would you like post bikini photos? And I'm like, no, like I actually spent countless hours like brainstorming ideas that I want to do. And like really, for me, it was really analyzing like what characters I want to play so that it kind of correlates with the characters I want to play on TV and mainstream. So yeah. So you, you have this incredible control over the content you're creating. But now you're moving into, hey, I'm doing a movie like Seance, I did After, where you have to essentially work for people at that point, and you can't oversee it. From a mind shift standpoint, how hard is it to actually have to take a step back and give someone else the keys to the car? Oh my God, I, I love it. Like I, it feels so good to just be able to like go on set and be like, okay, let me know when you need me. I'll be in my trailer reading my lines. That's all I have to do today right I think it's like an amazing freeing experience because I've been doing and producing and doing all that for so long and to be able to be on like a big set and just have one role and your only role is to just get into character and like have a mind space of just being in that character it's it's so much easier it's so much freeing and it's like really gives me the opportunity to focus on my acting which is what I want to do so yeah I love it <laughs> you've also got a clothing line and now a scripted podcast so I want to start with the clothing line because Again, new generation of entrepreneurs we're seeing. I mean, I don't know how into Bitcoin you are. I'm not even that into Bitcoin, but I'm like, just it's... getting into it now. <laughs> I just started my own Coinbase account and my brother's like sending me some Ethereum and I'm really excited about it. That was a different so. language. I just know Bitcoin and I know Elon, like you're like Ethereum. I'm like, is that a new element? Like, what is that? <laughs> it's a different coin. It's a different coin. It's so exciting. I'm I'm like, I'm like getting into NFTs. I'm like, wait, how can I create my own NFT? This is wait, just... wait, wait, wait. I let's jump into that. 
talk to me like I'm a six-year-old. I have no idea. What is an NFT? Explain it to I me. I honestly, I'm just researching, so I'm not an expert either, but it's basically like, I like to look at it as like art, but it's, you just can't physically have it. It's like all exists online, which is like a weird thing to think about, but that's kind of how Bitcoin and like coin and like all these new coins are too. It's just all digital. And I just feel like the way the world's moving is, is so digital that like, why, why can't art exist online? Why can't like currency exist online? And I honestly just came back from a little Island that I went to and they accept Bitcoin there. And I thought it was crazy to think that like, like Bitcoin is accepted everywhere. So I just feel like it's just going to continue growing. And like by next year, a lot of these coins are going to be skyrocketing. So I want to buy some. <laughs> You're like, let me just get in. <laughs> let me just get in now before it's too late. <laughs> well, the, the reason I was transitioning there was because from Bitcoin, like today, it's having a really down day. And it's because, you know, you've got people like Elon Musk who can make a comment and it drives the markets mm -hmm. because of such a massive social media following. And he's so either well-respected or infamous, however you want to look at it. And it got me thinking about when you have the following you have and you start a clothing line, how much are you able to generate and drive the success of your clothing line because of the following? How much of an impact does that actually create when you're building a brand like that? Honestly, I feel like your clothing also have to look good because if you're for me, like creating a clothing line, I, I could have done it years ago, but I just didn't want it to just be like merch and it just be like Inanna on a t-shirt. Like, I just feel like no one would really, I mean, even if they buy it, it's like the longevity of it wouldn't have lasted. So um, I definitely, there was a lot of thought process that went on. And um, I think not just me promoting it personally, I think it definitely needs like a team. And I had it sent to a bunch of my friends and just promoting it in the whole social web can create good sales, but everyone is creating different brands right now that it's so watered down that it's actually not as easy as it seems to sell your own stuff. If you're not like continuously posting on that account too. So I have to create a whole new account and a whole new platform and fan base for like a clothing line to where I can push it. Because if I just like push a clothing line and there's, there's not like new items being made and like new posts on that account, no one's really going to continue following it and like investing their own money into it because there's like thousands of other companies they can invest in. So um, it's just like keeping the brand integrity and continuing to grow. Um, the clothing company is super important too. Another big social media star is Josh Richards, who I started following. And I'm just like, wow, this kid is absolutely crushing it right now. And he just launched a production company with Mark Wahlberg to help other Gen Z stars develop content. What got me thinking is, where's that moment? And I'm guessing you've experienced it where you cross over from, hey, I'm just creating content on a social media platform to now the agents are talking to me. Managers want to sign me people are taking me seriously. What was that moment for you? It was probably about two, three years ago. I had a full social team that was just focusing on social media and that's all they did. And I got to a point where I felt very stagnant and I was like, well, I want to grow as an actress. I don't want to continue just doing social media. That's not like my passion and that's not my end goal. Like I have so much more things that I want to accomplish. So I think my turning point was I started from scratch. Like I, I completely dropped my whole team and because they just weren't believing in me as an actress and they didn't want to, I didn't feel like I was growing as an actress. So um, I started from scratch uh, completely 
signed to a new agency, a new manager. And then that's when I kind of felt like I, I grew more into the mainstream world. And that's when I got my after role and um, yeah, just started progressing more into the acting and film world. So when you start auditioning at that point and you walk in, let's call it for the after audition. Oh do you, do we, oh, I love this. <laughs> what, run, run with this. No, it was it was a process for sure. I feel like I just started from scratch and there was so many times where I went into auditions and I had like other people that were auditioning recognize me for like my YouTube videos and stuff. So it was just like it was definitely like a weird experience um, starting to audition from scratch. And like it's basically me starting in a whole new world, like I'm starting all over again. So they know who you are because I always imagine, are the casting agents young? Are they old? Are they traditional oh, okay. Hollywood? Yeah, like there was like probably two casting agents that have recognized me, but I'm talking about like the other actresses that were auditioning for the role. Like when you're sitting in the room, like quietly, and I just like feel another girl looking at me. And then by the time we like finish, she's like, hey, can I just take a quick photo with you? Like that, that was like the weird aspect that I had to like, kind of um, understand. <laughs> but with after, I think I did a self tape first and then I went in for a callback and then I went in again for a chemistry read with Josephine, which was the, the other actress in it. And then I think I finally, oh, and then I was supposed to do another, like I was supposed to play Stephanie originally. So I've had like six auditions for that role until I finally got Molly. Um, that's so. crazy so like you're literally like in the waiting room and they're yeah. like oh my god that's so you're, it's like you're there jennifer aniston to a certain degree it's awesome oh my god that's way too flattering definitely not <laughs> like jennifer aniston <laughs> but yeah it was it's just a funny experience <laughs> how do you handle that at that point like you're like hey i'm just one of you guys right now yeah i don't know it just like it just felt it felt super awkward for me i'm like wait you want a photo with me like i'm literally auditioning for the same role as you and it was just like I don't know it felt humbling actually to be honest because then it's just like me with like all these crazy millions of followers but I'm just trying to get to the same position that they are so um yeah just so I tell me about the scripted podcast how does that begin because I'm I'm like such a podcast nut but I listen to podcasts like all day every day like if I'm at the gym it's all I listen to where yeah. do you come up with a scripted idea versus hey it's just going to be me talking or interviewing people so I'd never see interviewing people just reminds me of a host and that's not really acting. So it's just not exciting for me. Like, I don't want to just sit and like, I want to actually dive into a role and possibly maybe get it picked up for a show and be able to actually act the character on screen. So I did a podcast with Tessa Thompson and QCO that was called Left Right Game. And it was done super well. And now it got picked up with Am uh, for Amazon to be created into like an actual scripted show. Um, but I wasn't technically attached, like I was attached only in the podcast version. So I didn't like get granted off the top the role for the actual show that's being made. Obviously I'm going to hopefully get a chance to audition for it. But then it got me thinking where I'm like, wait, I might as well just create my own podcast and hopefully sell it to an Amazon and actually be tied in as a creator and as an actor and talent for the role that I've wanted that I basically wrote for myself. Um, so I'm working right now with a ghostwriter. We're pretty much done all six episodes and I've already started casting and secured some of the roles. So for the main characters, um, but yeah, I'm playing like a Middle Eastern um, girl who her brother gets basically kidnapped and she's trying to figure out who kidnapped her and, and if he's still alive. 
So it's, it's a role that I've, I've based, I had written for a TV show and I've tried pitching for like the last four or five years and it never got picked up. So I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do, take this into my own hands and make it a, a a podcast. Hopefully it does great. I'm going to push the shit out of it. And then maybe it'll get put picked up as a show. By the way, Tess is the bomb. I've interviewed her a ton of times over the years. She is just awesome. Mm -hmm. She was super fun to work with. I love her. You're awesome, by the way. Congratulations on everything. The new movie is Seance. You're absolutely crushing it. Because of a a different generation, when you were pitched, I was like, I have to have her on the show because I'm so fascinated about the world that you exist in right now. And just going from the dichotomy of talking to someone like Andrew McCarthy, which is that, you know, 80s traditional Hollywood to now the world that your generation has built and the way you guys are able to self-create and manifest destiny, your own futures and your perfect example and a successful example of that, I think is just absolutely amazing. So congrats on all the success. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, folks, that's it for another show. What an unbelievable episode. An enormous thank you to Jimmy Johnson, Kamaro Usman, and Inanna Sarkis for just brilliant, brilliant interviews. As always, guys, please follow us. Please support us. You can find us all over social media and follow me on social media. On Twitter, we are at Endless Double underscore Hustle. And on Instagram, we're at Endless Hustle Pod. On Instagram, I'm at It's Me, Arthur Cade. And on Twitter, at Arthur Cade. Follow us, rate us, support us. We love it. We need you guys. We are back on Thursday with another triple header incredible incredible range of guests we have the legend dennis quaid sons of anarchy and now army of the dead star theo rossi army of the dead is the number one movie on netflix and theo is just amazing in it and then we finish off the episode with one of the greatest living culinary icons in the world the man who is the the face of bizarre foods andrew zimmern we'll see y'all on thursday thanks as always